Amen. Good morning. Good to be together as Brandywine Valley Church. I'm Pastor Nate Keeler. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, it's a real privilege to be able to preach the word today. Uh, if you have your own copy of the Bible, you can go to James chapter 3 or pull it on, up on an app, or you can use the one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a physical Bible, grab the one in front of you, take it home with you. Uh, it'll be our gift to you. Uh, it, it's, it, my one request is that you read it. Okay, so I uh, hope you grab that uh, as you walk out here later this, um, this afternoon. Uh, we're going to be in James chapter 3. As I mentioned, uh, we've been studying through this book that we're calling, we're calling the series James in Real Life, IRL, because uh, that's what James is about. How's your faith hit the ground um, in real life situations? Uh, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. It's 22 verses. You say, Nate, how in the world are you going to preach 22 verses on a communion Sunday? I don't know either. So let's see how it goes, okay? So let's read, starting in verse 13. We're, gonna, we're really going to camp on verses 13 to 18 because I think it sets up all of chapter 4, and I hope to explain why that is. So starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's say a word of prayer as we reflect on God's word here this morning. Father, we pray as we hear the words of James that these words today would not bounce off hearts, but Lord, be absorbed like a sponge into our hearts, that we would be people that walk in the wisdom from above, not the wisdom from below. Help us to do that today. Guide me in our text today that I might preach it rightly as I ought to. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see how to apply it in your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you were born uh, before 1983? Okay, uh, several of you, several of you not. I was, I was one when this story took place. It was September 1st, 1983. Korean Air Flight 007 departing from JFK International on its uh, way to Seoul, South Korea. When in the flight path, it mistakenly led them into restricted Soviet territory. Okay, not, not a good situation. It alerted Soviet fighter jets who immediately intercepted the, the flight. Like think, you know, like a Bond movie or, or something like that for a moment. Fighter jets on either side of this plane. And despite efforts to try to communicate with the Korean air crew, the fighter jets shot down flight 007, resulting in the tragic loss of every single life on the plane, 269 people were shot down. Some of you might remember what the world was like 
in a moment like that. You say, how in the world could the flight crew have gotten so far off course, leading to such a devastating tragedy? Well, the culprit, the problem, was a malfunctioning navigation system. They were using what's called INS, inertial navigation system, which is common in in aircrafts, but it was malfunctioning, giving them a false sense of security and inaccuracy about where they were. They thought, hey, we are safely headed to our destination to Seoul, when in fact they were in dangerous territory that would ultimately lead to disaster. And the tragedy is not only loss of life, but how easily this could have been avoided if they would have just realized that there was a malfunction and recalibrated their system, they would have gotten back off on track and none of this would have happened. And this tragic story serves today like blinking warning lights in the cockpit of our lives today, as we are going to see. Because every single one of us uses some kind of internal navigation system that God us in our life. We all have one. You have one, I have one, we all do. You might not think of it like that. You might not even be fully aware that you do, but I can assure you, you have one. We all make decisions that guide our lives. There is some kind of navigation system in the most mundane things that you use every single day to get out of bed, to brush your teeth, do whatever you do in your day. That's a navigation system. Not only the mundane things, but the really complex things. The biggest questions of life, like what is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? A, an internal navigation system is directing your thoughts and your actions, your decisions. James here is going to call that navigation system wisdom. Wisdom, which is a word we use all the time. Let me define it for you. The working definition we're going to use is wisdom is the set of underlying assumptions that we make about life, beliefs, and values applied to all of life's circumstances. Okay, it's wisdom, it's knowledge, the set of knowledge that we have, that we believe, applied to all of life's circumstances, which is why we all need wisdom. I wonder, why did you get up and come to church today? If you're watching online, why did you not get up and come to church today? No, you probably have very good reasons uh, for, for, and we're welcome, glad you're here, uh, sincerely glad you're here. But if you are here in this room, why did you get up and come to church today? My guess is there is a set of underlying assumptions, values, and beliefs that guided you to put this as a priority in your life today, to come in and you got an extra hour to make that decision as well, which is nice, Right? You say, well, no, 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 that's not why I made the decision. I made the decision because, you know, somebody dragged me here, my mom or dad or my, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or, or my husband or wife dragged me here. And by the way, we're glad that you did come. You are welcome here. But even that, do you realize that that was based on a set of underlying assumptions and values and beliefs that led you to be here? And the underlying assumption that led you to be here is that my life is going to go better today smoother today if I don't fight this, but just go with what they want me to do. And you made a good decision. It's a navigation system that you use to make even a decision about coming to church. We use them all the time. We use wisdom to guide us in our money, in our time, in our relationships, navigating conflicts, facing hardships, spiritual habits, and even things as big as what makes life worth living. Now, here's the key. 
We all have a spiritual navigation system in life. The question is, what kind do we have? What quality is it, right? How do we know that our underlying assumptions, our beliefs, our values are calibrated correctly to reality? How do we know that our navigation system isn't more like the tragic story of Korean Flight 007? Right? The answer to this question really is the difference between arriving safely at the destination that God has intended for you or potentially disaster in your life. Relational disaster, spiritual disaster, disaster in your career, in your habits, or whatever it might be, the difference is our navigation system. This is really important stuff that James is going to point out. So he wants today to help us distinguish between the two. What we're calling a, uh, um, an earthly or a worldly navigation system, as James calls it, or uh, the navigation system from above, that is the heavenly wisdom. And we're going to see three things today. We're going to look at two outcomes of these different systems, three examples of those systems being used, and one way, in fact, the only way to recalibrate, okay? So two, three, and one, this will really be the outline for how we move forward today, okay? So let's talk about two outcomes of the worldly and the heavenly navigation system or wisdom, as James says. Now, James, if you've been following along with us in this book, we know that James uh, wants to talk about practicality. He's not interested in just what you say, but how that's getting lived out in your life. And so he wants to know, hey, you, you might talk a big game about wisdom. It says in the first verse, in, in verse 13, hey, you who say that you're wise, you know, who among you says that they're wise? The hands might go up. He said, don't tell me how wise you are. Let me see it in your life. This is what James cares about. In other words, he cares about the outcomes of your wisdom, right? That's what will tell me what you actually believe, what kind of wisdom you're actually using. So what's the outcome of worldly wisdom? Well, look at verse 15 and 16. Listen to what James says. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And what's the outcome? Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The outcome of an earthly, worldly wisdom will be these four things, he says. He talks about jealousy. You will, it will work itself out in jealousy in your life. That is, you will want what other people have and them having it is a threat to you. That's jealousy. To selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is a spirit of self-promoting where you will use whatever means available to get yourself ahead, often at the expense of other people. That's self-ambition. Disorder. This is confusion, instability in yourself, in your relationships, in your place in society. Disorder. And then he says, every vile practice. Vile practice is like a catch-all term, basically in saying everything that's not good. These are the outcomes. In other words, in summary, worldly wisdom, this system, will lead to dysfunction in your life. It'll lead to broken, dysfunctional relationships, unhealthy relationships with yourself, with God, and with your world. This is worldly wisdom. Now, in contrast... He talks about the system of heavenly wisdom, 
verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first, look at the outcomes, pure and peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. In other words, the heavenly wisdom will have its outcome in the fruit of our life. And he says, first, it's pure. That is, it's, it's, uh, it, it's something that has integrity. Wisdom that is calibrated not to what is efficient, not to what you can get away with or what gets you ahead, but rather it's calibrated to what is pure, of doing what's right for the right reasons regardless of the results. That's pure. It's calibrated to peace, being peaceable. People that aren't just constantly trying to stir up drama, but trying to resolve conflicts. They don't walk around with, you know, a, 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 gas, a gasoline, but rather with an extinguisher, right, through life. This is peaceable. Open, gentle, open to reason. They're not narrow-minded. I'm only going to think this one way about this, but open to reason. Full of mercy. Not punitive, not always trying to get people back for the things that they did for you, where you have a hit list of how you're going to get back to other people, but rather quick to forgive, not to hold a grudge. Impartial. Not judging people based on their family name or how much money or power they have or their influence or their ethnic profile, but rather treating people fairly. Creating the image of God. Sincere. You you see the list. In summary, I would say that heavenly wisdom leads to functioning, thriving, healthy relationship with self, in relationships and society, and with God. Do you see the distinction between heavenly wisdom and worldly wisdom in its outcomes? See, we can talk a big game all we want by saying, oh, you know, God is first in my life and I love people. Those are my values. But what will really determine whether that's true is the outcome. This is what James is saying. Everybody kind of got that in their minds? Yeah, go like this. If you say, yeah, I got it. Got it, Nate. Good. Okay, that's really important as we start moving forward because as we get into chapter 4, all of what we just said about earthly or worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom is the foundation for everything that James is going to say next in chapter 4. Now, if you just kind of open to chapter 4 and start reading through, it's going to look like a bunch of random, disconnected gripes that James has, things that he's like not so happy about, right? That's what it might look like. But actually, the more I studied, the more I saw how it kind of fits like a glove with this grid of worldly and heavenly wisdom. And he's going to give us three examples of worldly wisdom and, its pro, and what it produces and what its outcome is. He's going to talk uh, about fighting, judging, and presuming. We'll talk about these three examples. And then right in the middle of chapter 4, he's going to show us the only way to recalibrate your navigation system. Okay, So that's a little bit of the outline of where we're going to go next. Let's look at the three examples in chapter 4. The first example is about fighting, the outcome of fighting in your relationships. Chapter 4 is verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. I don't think he's actually talking about like physically murdering. He's probably more talking about the kind of murder that, that Jesus talked about when you 
are angry and harbor bitterness and resentment against someone so that you emotionally want to murder them. You covet and cannot obtain so that you fight and quarrel. Now, most of us, when we're trying to answer the question that James asks about what causes quarrels and fights, what causes conflict, we'd say, that's easy, and you point the finger to the person you're in conflict with. (laughs) Them. (laughs) That's what causes it, right? The, The little old lady who's driving super slow and making me late to work is causing the conflict. Or, you know, my boss who refuses to give me the raise that I deserve is what's causing me the conflict. Or my spouse who doesn't appreciate all that I do around this house. Or my my spouse who doesn't appreciate this money that I bring in so they can have their life that they want. And the list goes on. The problem, we say, is them. (laughs) And James says, hey, be careful when you point the finger. Why? Because there's three always pointing back at you. Right? As my grandmom always used to tell me. He says, the problem is actually in most of our quarrels, in most of our conflict, the problem is us, is you and me. And what's underneath that? Well, the underneath that is this self-centered desire that is all you really care about. And it's leading to dysfunctional relationships, he said. He says, you want to know why you're fighting? You want to know the outcomes are quarreling and selfish ambition and jealousy and disorder? You want to know why? It's coming from a worldly set of wisdom, from a belief and assumption a value that might sound something like this. My happiness is what matters most. My desires matter most. My wants, my needs, my happiness is preeminent. Wow, isn't it amazing that this was written almost 2,000 years ago, and yet it's just as relevant today? People really don't change. This has been the worldview since the dawn of time. Isn't this the message of our world? We see it in mantras like look out for number one. Do whatever makes you happy and don't let anyone get in the way. Go get what you deserve. Huh? And James points out many of the times we we think what's going to make us happy is what other people have. In fact, how often is it that we didn't even know that we were unhappy until we see what someone else has and suddenly... You are unhappy. You ever heard the saying that comparison is the thief of joy? Isn't that so true? Oh, I didn't even know I was so unhappy until I saw on, uh, on, on social media this vacation that so-and-so had. I didn't even know how upset I was until I saw how great these other people's kids are doing in school. Now I need what they have. I want that status. I want those material possessions. I want that pool in my backyard too. I want that watch. I want that set of golf clubs. I want that money (laughs) like they do. In the words of Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street, greed is good. It's the mantra that runs our world. I need to make that magic number, we think, in order to be happy. I need that corner office in order to be happy. And I don't care what kind of office politics I need to use. I don't care who I need to climb over to get it. I don't kind of care what kind of business ethics I need to bend or how many hours I have to work at the expense of my family in order to get it. See, it's this kind of outcome of happiness is what matters most. He says it's leading to your conflicts. Do you not see it? I wonder if you evaluated the conflicts that you have today. 
what would you see underneath? Is it motivated by your own happiness being put at the very center? Your greed, what you want at the center? Hmm. Example number two, judging. We'll hit this one quickly. Verse 11, do you not, he says, do not speak evil against one another. At the end in verse 12 of this section, he says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? The problem that they were having is that they were judging one another. They were putting themselves in position as judges and doing, in doing so, they were looking down on people, elevating themselves above those other people. We think then, once we do that, we think of that person as less than us. He's saying, do you see the outcome of this worldly wisdom that you're using? What is the underlying assumption, the belief, the value that is resulting in this outcome? It is a belief of superiority. I am better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm more deserving than you. Again, things haven't changed in 2,000 years, have they? We still deal with superiority in our lives today. And of anybody, James is saying, who shouldn't be people that are judgmental, shouldn't it be Christians? I mean, think about our theology. Our theology says that every single person is made in the image of God. Every single person on the face of the planet is made in the image of God with inherent dignity and worth. That puts us equal, for one. Two, every single one of us is equal in our sin because sin separates us from a holy God. And I don't care who you are, every single one of you are, are sinners. So that makes us equal. Three, guess what else makes us equal? The fact that it's only through Jesus and his work on the cross that any of us can come to uh, a right relationship with God. Any of us can enter heaven. Doesn't Whether you have 10 works and this other person has 100 works, that doesn't matter. It's all through Jesus Christ. That makes us equal. Fourth, it makes us equal because the Bible says there is one judge, and that is God himself. So if anyone should have a reason not to judge anyone else, it ought to be Christians. This is what he's saying. See, guys, you're using a worldly system, and it's leading you to these kinds of outcomes of superiority. Third example he gives is presuming. This will make sense as we read it. Look at verse uh, 13, chapter 4. Now come, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go on, go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and then poof. That's the Greek word, poof. No, it vanishes. <laughs> Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you're boasting in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, what is it that James is warning us against? It's not planning ahead. It's not trying to have a successful business or profit. These are good things. What he's warning us against is a presuming upon God, presuming that you know what's best for your life without even consulting God, presuming your future is fixed and everything's going to work out just fine. It's presuming that you are running your life instead of God. It's a, a mental map, if it would, as it were, that says I am a master of my own destiny, right? 
It's a map that leads us to selfish ambition, outcomes of selfish ambition. So again, ask the question, what is the underlying presumptions? What is the the value system and the beliefs that lead us to live this way? It's the worldly wisdom of self-determination. I run my own life. I'm a self-made person. Again, 2,000 years later, this is the mantra of our day, isn't it? I determine my own agenda. I determine my own status, my own success. No one tells me who I am but myself. I define myself. I give myself my own name. See any of that today? I give my own, myself my own morality. I give myself my own pronouns. What is this? This is a worldly mental map that says I am self-determining not God. And James says, man, you, when you do that, you are boasting and prideful. You are putting yourself in place of God under his sovereignty, under his right to rule over his creation. Living as if we are going to live forever and ever without consequence. But James says, hey, your life, our lives, are missed. What a great way to sort of put us properly in our place on this planet. Like a mist, like gone. Isn't that the, the reality of this world that we're in? Life is so short. To demonstrate this, raise your hand if you know the name of your, the first name of your great grandfather. Raise your hand. So about a third, maybe, a third of you know the name of your great-grandfather. This is somebody who's on this planet probably a couple of decades ago, whose blood is coursing through your veins, and you don't even know, many of us, his name. And if we went to the great-great-grandfather, there'd be even fewer hands and so forth and so on. Our lives are a mist. They are short. Friends, this is a worldly system. This, these are dysfunctional outcomes that we see embedded in our fights, embedded in our judging attitudes, embedded in our presumptions about our lives. So James doesn't mince words, does he? He hasn't yet, and he's not going to in this book. He's saying that if our navigational system in our life is being guided by worldly wisdom, it is going to put us on a collision course with our creator. Look at chapter four, verse four. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now he's not saying, when he's saying the world, he's talking about this world system that we're talking about. He's not talking about people, right? We, we ought to be. Uh, friendly and friends with people, he's talking about this kind of system that we're talking about. Now, if you were an Eagles fan, you get this because this is Dallas week, okay? You get what he's saying because here's what I've never heard in my entire life. I've never heard somebody say, oh, my first favorite team is the Eagles and my second favorite team are the Cowboys. Never heard it. Never going to happen. Ever, 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 right? Why? Because to be friendly 
with Dallas is to be an enemy of Philadelphia. And vice versa is just how it works. And this is exactly... <laughs> now, that's like the most amens I've gotten out of some of you <laughs> in seven years of preaching. Anyway, you, you see the point. This is the very same point that, that James is making. You can't buddy up to the world system and then say, yeah, I'm a friend of God. I'm following heavenly wisdom. doesn't work that way. They're diametrically opposed to each other. One's from above, one's from below. One's from God himself, from his word, from the scriptures based on truth. And one is based on lies. It's based on, in fact, demonic sources. Do you see it? This puts us at odds with God. So here's my question just for you to be thinking about as we prepare for our communion time together, be thinking about this question because it's gonna come up in our time of communion to reflect what set of maps, what set of maps is guiding your internal navigation system? What set of maps is guiding your internal navigation system? Is it worldly wisdom? Is it heavenly wisdom? Is it based on man and human tradition and ideologies from this world? Is it based on God's word unchanging, true in our lives? And how do you ultimately know, look at the outcomes, look at what it's producing. It'll say more about the system of wisdom that you're using than what you might say with your words. So how do we recalibrate in close to this message? How do we recalibrate so that we can move more toward or fully onto the navigation system of heavenly wisdom. And every single one of us has to ask this question because not, not a single one of us solely base our wisdom on the word of God. We even mix and mingle, don't we? And so how do we, how do we when we discover that maybe we're leaning on the worldly wisdom, how do we recalibrate? Well, here's the good news. There's only one way to do it, but it's something every single one of us can do. And it's never too late with God. As long as you have breath in your lungs, it's not too late with God. Isn't that a wonderful reality? Look at verse six. Right in the middle of this whole section that James is talking about, verse six, he says, but he, God, gives more grace. Oh, what wonderful news. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. What is it that James says? The only way to recalibrate, friends, is through Repentance. Repentance. Now, that's a, that's a big, you know, Christian-y word. You say, what in the world? What's, what exactly is repentance? Repentance is simply this. It's saying, I used to just be going in this direction, following my own wisdom, following my own way, doing it myself. Now I'm realizing that I've been going the wrong direction. I need to turn, and I need to start going the other direction. That's repentance. It's 180. That's what the word means in Greek. It's making a 180 turn back toward God. And James uses like five or so words to describe sort of the heart posture of repentance. So what does repentance look like? James, first of all, says repentance looks like 
humility, a heart posture of humility, rightly placing yourself before God, a holy, perfect God, and you as his creature, and recognizing the distance between those two things, a heart posture of humility versus pride, of confession. He uses this term, cleanse your hands, wash clean, confess. This is the idea of mourning and grieving your sin, recognizing I've been, I've been in the cockpit of my life following earthly wisdom and I'm realizing, I'm confessing that that is wrong. That's confession. Submission, a heart posture of submission, saying I'm going to accept God's navigation system for my life. I'm gonna yield to it. I believe it's better than my own. That's submission. The heart posture of resistance, that is resisting the enemy, resisting the spiritual enemy, because here's what the the enemy is going to do. As soon as you even think about repenting, here's what the enemy does. Oh, don't, you don't, listen, don't, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. Uh, Listen, God's just gonna rip you off. If you expose yourself like that to him, man, he's gonna rip you off. He's gonna strangle the freedom that you have in your life. He's gonna make things too difficult. You, You don't want that. You're good just as you are. Just leave it as you are, right? So what is James saying? Resist the enemy. Resist those lies when they come to you because they will indeed come. Maybe even right now they're coming at you. Resist and he will flee because he flees at the truth. Resist. And then he says, worship. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Come into his presence. Worship him. Experience his love. Experience his acceptance of you. Experience his grace towards you even now as he draws near to you. I want to give you an opportunity to recalibrate through repentance right now as we approach this communion table, the Lord's Supper. Because It's in this communion table and what it symbolizes that even allows us to draw near to God. What is it that this communion table symbolizes? It symbolizes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ broken for you, given in your place as a sacrifice to bring you back to God, to draw us near into his presence. And that's the only way that we can be in the presence of God is through Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Jesus lived in perfect submission to heavenly wisdom. And the outcome is making peace. In fact, you read that last verse in chapter 318 where it says, those who sow peace will reap a harvest of peace. Who sowed the peace ultimately was Jesus. And we reap a harvest of that peace in our lives. So we come before this communion table. I wanna give you a moment to repent, to repent. Do me a favor, go, go back in the slides and show those five phrases. There we go. I'll just leave this up on the screen for a little bit and give you the opportunity to just take a few minutes to do just that in your own life, to humble yourself, to come to a place of confession, submission, resist the lies, 
and to enter into a time of worship. Take a moment to do that.